we have no functional safety net. If you're a worker here, you could be comfortably middle-class, affluent even, and one bad illness, like one badly timed disaster, natural disaster, can knock you off of your whole life, like your life savings. It can ruin your life. So if you have that feeling, you're always thinking there's something you should be doing. It's always there, right? And it permeates, again, really wealthy people who are just trying to be even wealthier, as well as people like working class people who have genuine struggles, you know, whose side hustle isn't just to like make them feel better about their boring life. It's to actually pay their light bill. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to a special summer edition of Punk Rock HR. All summer long, we'll be bringing you encore episodes of Punk Rock HR that I absolutely love. We've re-edited them, remixed them, we've made them a little fresh, but the conversation is really important. So if you've missed the episode the first time around or you heard it, but you wanna hear a fresh take, sit back and enjoy the special summer encore edition of Punk Rock HR. This week, my guest is Mary Ellen Slater. She's the founder and CEO of a B2B marketing company called RepCap Media. But Mary Ellen is so much more than that. She's a scientist. She's a journalist. She's a former writer at the Washington Post. She's also a mother, a partner, just an absolute dear friend. And she's someone who has a strong opinion on entrepreneurship and the hustle economy. I don't know when the word hustle emerged in our lexicon as a good thing, But Mary Ellen and I are here today to tell you it is not a good thing. It is not a proper way to live your life. It's not a proper way to be connected to the people you love. And it certainly isn't a good way to run a business. So if you've heard the word hustle, side hustle related to the gig economy, and you just wonder what the hell is this all about? And does the hustle really pay? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Listen, you and I are like-minded sisters on something. We fucking hate the hustle. (laughs) We hate (laughs) the hustle. We hate the grind. We hate the bros. We hate the whole mentality. We hate it all. I'm speaking for myself, but I'm going to take the liberty of speaking for you. Drives me crazy. I know it drives you crazy. What is wrong with people out there? Why is the hustle so popular? Well, you know, if you're going to tell a lie, tell a really big lie, right? (laughs) So we've kind of got this idea. And I think it's kind of swirled around on the idea of, um, you know, the the gig economy, right? It's like, oh, do you have a side hustle? Somehow like a side hustle is now a thing that lots of people have and they have to have in order to fill in the gaps and pay their bills, right? So there's that type of hustle. And then there's this other type of hustle that's like wannabe entrepreneurs, startup hustle where it's like, yeah, I don't even eat food anymore. I work in my startup 12 hours a day. Now I get up at 4.35 because all those other jokers are sleeping until five, you know? And it's really, I could blame Gary V. I think he's the patron saint of the hustle. (laughs) But obviously we were here to receive this message like collectively, you know? And I think it speaks to the struggles of like real working people to achieve their dreams and honestly just to pay their light bill, you know, that's a certain type of hustle. And those people are not bragging about their hustle. All right. The people who brag about the hustle, they're usually not actually hustlers, not in a positive sense of the word. I hate it. I think it's a terrible way to run your business. I think it's detrimental to our families, to our communities. And I wish as like a narrative in our culture, I wish it would just go away. Take it back to the beginning. I'm always down to blame Gary V. Like that's just a fun sporty thing to do. But 
generations of workers have been hustling and it's not getting any better for any of us. So I wonder what's the driving force behind hustling? Is it greed? And when is it going to stop? No, I mean, I think it's sometimes it's greed. I think it's also desperation. It's anxiety, right? So we've got an economy in this country that has no safety net. We have no functional safety net. If you're a worker here, you can be comfortably middle-class, affluent even, and one bad illness, like one badly timed disaster, natural disaster, can knock you off of your whole life, like your life savings. It can ruin your life. When you have that feeling, like when you have that in your bones from the time you start working to the time you retire, which most people never get to retire, by the way. So if you have that feeling, you're always thinking there's something you should be doing. It's always there, right? And it permeates, again, really wealthy people who are just trying to be even wealthier, as well as people like working class people who have genuine struggles, you know, whose side hustle isn't just to like make them feel better about their boring life. It's to actually pay their light bill. Well, I wonder if you as a working mother, a business owner, a CEO, an executive, if you have that own feeling in your life and what toll it's taken on your life and what are you doing about it? I can't imagine there's not a night where you go to bed and you're not thinking about your children, your partner, your business, all of that. I mean, it's got to be exhausting. It's completely exhausting. And what's interesting is that this myth is so pervasive that this is what you have to do, should do to succeed as an entrepreneur, as a business owner in this country, that even though I hate it, it still infected me. I still constantly had that anxiety. And I started, you know, honestly, I started seeing a therapist. And it's really funny. We were joking. I mean, I don't have like acute mental health issues, but I was like, I went in and I'm like, look, I'm just not feeling good. He was like, yeah, we call this your midlife crisis. Have a seat, lady. <laughs> oh, no. So we're sitting there, you know, going over all this stuff. And like, I had this great appointment. And again, I love this guy, right? And it's like, I went, drove back home. And I think I called you afterwards. You know, I got a Fitbit, right? Because I got to exercise. Because exercise is part of the hustle, right? You can't be fat in the new economy. So here we go. And I come back and the guy's like, how much are you sleeping? And I was like, oh, no, I think I sleep enough. And he was like, well, you got a Fitbit. It tracks it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. So I sit there and I like scroll it open and I look at it and I realize I would have told you that I slept seven, eight hours a night. I was sleeping like five, five and a half. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. I drove all the way across town to pay this good looking man $150 (laughs) to tell me to get more sleep. Well, it's money well spent and you don't pay me anything and I'm always telling you to get more sleep. I mean, I think sleep is so fundamental and yet sleep is one of those things we're always trying to hack. You always talk about the stories we tell ourselves and one of the stories right now that's really pervasive is we either need 12 hours of sleep and we need to be like Ariana Huffington and go get a sleep pod and go on a sleep retreat or we need four hours of sleep and we need to wake up before sunrise and then start the day going forward, right? I mean, there's no in-between. And I think you, Mary Ellen, you are the great defender of a good eight hours. <laughs> like, I need eight hours. I'm so much nicer. And so then I went and I did this, you know, I started sleeping and tracking and making myself go to bed. And it's like my mood like drastically improved. And so I know you and I were joking about it. it's like, ooh, Lori, I got this new life hack. And you're like, tell me what it is. And I'm like, eight hours of sleep a night. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to believe it. It'll improve your mood. You'll be more productive at work. You'll be so creative. It'll even make your sex life better. But here's the bullshit I'm going to call on you because you're not getting eight hours of sleep. Even even though you know better, even though you hate the hustle. I'm trying. I'm trying really, really hard. What gets in the way of it? Let's start there. Like what gets in the way of you taking good enough care of yourself to get eight hours? Because I have to say something, people who do wake up at 4am and exercise, they look fantastic. They're really dedicated to self-care. So I want you to be in the camp of a sensible eight hours, but what's stopping it? 
So what stops it is that I have one child. She's in middle school and she has to be at school at 7.05 a.m. Kind of ruined my life. I have another child who doesn't like to go to bed until 10 p.m. at night. And I know other people have these kids that like go to sleep at like 6.30, but mine have never been those children. My partner is a very hands-on parent as well, but I can't go to bed until other people have gone to bed. And then I have to wake up before other people wake up. And like, that's just being a mama. That's usually what squeezes me. I also have a lot of interruptions in the middle of the night. That's also part of being a parent. It is getting better. I will say this, like since we've been having this conversation, I definitely don't get squeezed to five and a half anymore. Like it's more like six and a half or seven. Mm -hmm. And it made a huge difference. Huge difference. So one of the ways that we can fight the hustle is we can slow down and we can Mm -hmm. reclaim our sleep, right? Mm -hmm. And talk to ourselves, talk to our family about how sleep is important. What are some of the other things that you're doing, even though you're part of the hustle, you're trying to keep up, you're trying to grow your important, awesome business that I love and support and that helps me out. So I don't want you to stop growing. But what else are you doing to make sure that you're not falling into the hustle trap? I have real meals with people that I like who I don't pay and that don't pay me at least twice a week. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty amazing. (laughs) For a woman who travels as much as you do, that's pretty good. So I started thinking about in terms of things that fill my bucket and things that empty my bucket. And if I'm doing something that empties my bucket, there better be like a lot of money involved. Like you better be paying me to empty out my bucket or it's better be for the greater good. I better be taking this like to save the world, do something powerful for my community. I'm not just going to let you drain my bucket for nothing. And there are things that fill my bucket. And one of the things I've learned that really fills my bucket is dinners and lunches with my girlfriends. So I make a point to make sure that I get that kind of quality time. I love that advice about lunches and dinners because it's so simple and it's such an effective way to get to the heart of self-care. I wonder what other things you're doing to take care of yourself and to put yourself first and really take control of your career and your life. I read books that are not business books. I mean, and sometimes they do shape the way I think about business. You know, like right now I'm reading a book. It's a religious book. It's fundamentally like a sociological religious text. And like, it's shaping the way I think about certain things and design and the language we use and the narrative we use around the way we talk about our work. But but I make sure that my reading does not consist only of Harvard Business Review, only of like whatever business book is out this week. I mean, I'm as excited as anybody to check out Simon Sinek's new book, but it can't be the only thing you read all year. That's not good for your brain. That advice is so important because for me, one of the things that I had to stop doing was only being an HR blogger, only being a podcaster, only being a writer, like only being the one thing that I am and do a little bit more. And fiction has been one of the things that has saved me from being a one-note Johnny. Like I just read this fantastic book called The Last Book Party. Oh, it was so good. I finally have something else to talk about other than my stupid job. Nobody wants to hear any more about my podcast or my book. And so I love that you've gone to fiction, that you've gone to religious texts, that you've gone to other things in order to reconnect. And it reminds me of another conversation that you and I have all the time about just being more human and being a better person. Like there's this movement out there right now that if you want to be plugged in and you want to participate in the hustle and the future of work, you've got to be focused on STEM. Talk to me about that. I know you've got a POV on this. One, I think, you know, I don't think that that's true. I mean, I'm not going to knock a STEM education. I have one. My undergraduate degree is in agronomy from LSU. 
that's soil science for those of you who are not plugged into the agriculture community. I studied statistics. I studied chemistry. I studied biology. I am, my brain is a scientist's brain, right? Like my framework for how I solve problems, even as a marketer, is very much like, well, what does the data tell us? So it's not that I'm anti-STEM, but I think it takes more than that to be a smart person. I think it takes more than that to have wisdom. Like, so I, my wisdom doesn't so much come from that. Where I got my wisdom, if I picked up any in college, was my religious studies minor. And again, it's reading literature, it's reading history. Those are the things, philosophy, that's what gives us perspective. And again, answering that question, not of like, well, ooh, can I do this? It's should I? Science will never answer for you. Engineering will never answer the should we do this question. You need both to have a healthy brain. And one of the things we don't ask enough in our own lives, I think, is should I? Should I take this job? So many of us are following the hustle. We're trying to capitalize on all opportunities. And we chase the dollars instead of thinking about the cost to our lives, to our bodies, to our relationships. Should I stay out late when I'm at a conference, right? Something as simple as that. We don't ask ourselves that because we're afraid of missing the moment. I think that should I question is so mindful, but it's not like woo-woo mindful. It's just practical mindful. I was thinking about when you miss things. Like I've gotten to a point, you know, you and I go to a lot of conferences. When I was younger, I felt like I needed to stay out all night in order to meet people, to make connections. And now that I'm a bit older, I still like to have a good time and I still like those opportunities to meet people in a more casual setting. But I don't drink really as Mike I used to. It's actually pretty rare for me to drink now. And so one, people look stupid a lot faster <laughs> like other, the other drunk people. But two, it's like, again, I have to sleep. Usually I'm at an event because I've got responsibilities. I'm not there just to hang out. And so my body isn't going to let me. My body told me I had to slow down. So I go back and I just go to bed and the world keeps turning. It keeps turning. I'm interested in having a conversation about how the hustle economy affects men and women differently. I believe it affects men and women differently, but I wonder what you think about that and how it's affected you individually. When we start talking about the hustle and gender, I think we leave women out, right? Like, so I think that we talk about that image of the hustler. It's usually someone who's again getting up at 4 30 in the morning, eating their shake for breakfast and their coffee and getting their workout in and then running into work and working 12 hours and coming back. Do you know what that person is? That is a person who either does not have children or has a partner who's caring for their children. Women generally have other responsibilities that would make it very difficult. Like that could never be my life. There's no way. That's not my life. I don't see my children if I do that. Who cares for my kids? For most women, that's not something that they can do. Yet we push women and so many others into this hustle mindset, into this gig economy. And I think there's real danger for the stability of families, for communities. What do you think about that? That's something I think people don't realize about a lot of these jobs is that the degree to which the things we're automating first have been things that are traditionally the more stable, steady jobs that mostly women, like people caring for children or elderly family members, they've appreciated the stability and relative steadiness of those jobs. Well, that very steadiness is what makes them right for like that kind of digital transformation shift out to gig work. So yeah, I mean, we basically, as those jobs push out, women may not have as like stable of an option. In other cases, though, I will say other cases, women actually really like having those jobs because there's women who have been pushed out of the workforce completely and they're able to come back in by being gig workers, say, while their kids are in school. So I'm not sure what the net balance of that is, but I feel like it's probably not in our favor because most things aren't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's an interesting point. When it comes to the world of work, nothing is in favor of the worker. It's always in favor of the owner. I mean, I don't mean to sound like an undergraduate who just took an economics class, right? But when you think about the future of work, everything favors 
the consolidation of money and the consolidation of power, including this tech industry that you work in. So I wonder what the tension is there for you as someone who thinks critically, understands data, but also has a heart for the human story. When you think about the future of work and you're working with these tech companies, what kind of tension do you feel as a coach and an advisor? One of the things that in terms of how we've structured my company, so I own a boutique agency, like we are specialty players, it's content marketing. And my people, everybody assumes that my writers are freelancers. Like I find that that question comes up a lot. It's like, oh yeah, your writers. Well, can we hire them as contractors too? And I'm like, my writers aren't contractors. They are W-2 employees. I pay for their health insurance. I pay for benefits. They get paid vacation. You know, all of those human things. It's a remote workforce. So we try to be very flexible and adapt to people's caregiving needs. And not everybody on my team that has caregiving needs is because they're parents. Some of them have to care for their own parents. So... What I find is that we use the technology in order to support our humanness and not the other way around. The technology, when it works ideally, allows us to have those connections that we otherwise couldn't have. Yeah, but Mary Ellen, how do you afford to run a company with employees, right? Isn't that the statement out there, the statement that is fact, that you cannot possibly have a workforce that's all full-time employees and pay them well and give them benefits and give them maternity leave and give them sick pay and PTO and all the kind of good stuff that we used to give 10, 15, 20 years ago and still compete in the global economy. You just can't do it, Mary Ellen. You don't know it yet. You're going to fail. Oh, so far, so good. (laughs) We keep growing. We keep getting better and better clients and better and better work. But I would say partly it's because we've pushed ourselves up. One of the stories we tell ourselves, stories about hustling, right? The hustling entrepreneur. But I'll tell you, most of the really successful entrepreneurs I know actually do get lots of sleep and they get exercise and they hang out with their kids. People who are in it for the long haul. But I would also say another sort of lie that we tell ourselves is if you're a writer, if you're creative, you know, it's back to, I guess, my defense of the liberal arts I like to, to talk about is that that work isn't worth anything. And it turns out that work is worth the most in our economy. So what we have done is pushed up writers who sell words get paid pennies per word. Writers who sell ideas make lawyer hourly rates. Yeah, but how many opportunities are there for writers to sell ideas? Are there more than we think? There's more than we think, and there's more than people give themselves credit for. I mean, I do run into people who will say, well, I want you to help me with this. Will you write this stuff? And then they're shocked to find out what I make. And then they're like, but writers don't make that. And I'm like, I do. I'm busy. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, well, go find one of the cheap ones. So I think it's something where there's a lot of people who want to do something. Most of them are actually really bad at it. I think a lot of people think they can write, but they're not that great at it. But if you're really bringing critical thinking in there, and if you're really actually pushing for new, fresh ideas that are worth spreading in the world, that there's not as many of those. And that's the work that we fight for. I don't need the rest of the work. I can make a very comfortable living. My people can make a very comfortable living without even bothering with that. Lots of people are hungry for that level of insight, support, and guidance. We talked a little bit earlier about the world of STEM. And it's not STEM versus creative. It's actually a blend of both. But I see there's often a delineation between the world of creative and business professional. And it's an artificial uh, separation, right? I think the only difference between somebody who's creative and someone who's a business person is a paycheck. And you need a paycheck to be creative. Like This is something I've been talking about for years. Do you find that when you talk to people about writing or creating they really don't have an understanding of what it takes to be a true working artist in our economy. I don't know what else to call it. Artist, right? Well, okay. So here's the thing. At its core, to be an artist, which I think will be the most valuable occupation and mindset in our economy in 50 years, an artist is someone 
who can imagine something that doesn't already exist and make it real. That's going to be a pretty powerful skill set to have Mm -hmm. in the coming years. Very highly compensated. Unfortunately, it is also not evenly distributed in our economy. It's not evenly cultivated in our education system. And I think that that's where a lot of the pain is going to come from. I mean, I think it's a very human capacity, but I don't think that we are respecting that in everybody. Little kids have it left and right. We call it out of people. It's really sad. But what I think is going to happen in the economy is like, if you think about your work, like when I talk about, I consider myself a creative. I don't consider myself a creative because I'm a writer, because my background is journalism, which is more of a craft. That's not literature. I mean, I like literary nonfiction, but I'm really a craft person in the way that I learned to write. I consider myself creative because I get creative in solving problems. If there is something, the stuff I love, give me the sticky, messy, gooey, ambiguous, messed up situation. That's what I want to untangle. You tell me you can't do it, like watch me. That is where I think creativity comes into play. And there are amazing paychecks available for people who can do that. Well, from your lips to God's ears, man. (laughs) (laughs) So it's how you think about your work, right? So if you think, well, my creativity is where I write or my creativity is where I paint or do sculpture, then yeah, you've isolated it off into something that there's a limited number of people that get paid very well for it. If you can take the same skill set that you applied to making sculptures and apply it to the job that you're actually in, you're going to do just fine. Well, I love how encouraging you are. And to bring it all the way full around to the hustle economy, one of the things that has driven me crazy about the hustle economy is that we don't speak honestly about how hard it is to separate someone, a client, from their money. (laughs) So it's incredibly hard to do that. It's incredibly hard to get someone to write you a check, no matter how great you are, no matter how skilled you are, no matter how well you solve problems. Getting over that final hump is always a challenge. So there are people out there who are in the gig economy, they're hustling, they're struggling, and they want to sleep. They want to do all the things that you've just talked about, but they're really having a problem with the sales cycle. I know you've received great sales advice throughout the year. Do you have any advice to leave people with to help them get over that last hurdle? Because as you know, I believe money solves almost every problem. Do you like, I always say about when I'm traveling, it's like, do I have a working credit card and an ID? Everything else can be fixed. That's exactly right. (laughs) Like you can buy anything else, like you can get out of any jam. No, I think the best sales advice, I've actually got a lot of really good sales advice over the years. And the two people that I'll give props to for that are Ryan Estes and Don McPherson. Like I've been privileged to work with them and work alongside with them and glean what I could over the years. And the most important thing they taught me is that a good salesperson is a problem solver. If you go into the conversation prepared and you listen and you figure out what the person's real problem is, like what is their real challenge, which may not be what they thought was their problem when they called you. If you can put the work in and understand that and come up with the real solution, you've got a customer for life, right? Like that's really where that trust happens. That's where that magic happens. It's not hard to get the money if you build that kind of relationship. That kind of relationship takes time and it's almost counterintuitive to the way that we think the sales cycle goes and the hustle Anti-hustle. Yeah, right. Anti-hustle. That is not the hustle. You cannot rush this. You know, I actually said this to somebody on my team the other day. She got the opportunity to talk to a startup CEO in our field. And like she introduced me to it. We got on the phone and we were talking about employee engagement and surveys and sentiment analysis and narrative and how we tell stories about the way we work. And it was a fascinating conversation. We get off the call and like later on, 
I'm checking in with this team member who's fairly new to our team. And she said, well, I'm sorry I wasted your time with that call because we didn't get a proposal, right? It wasn't like a buying. She was thinking like as it was a sales call. And I was like, that was not a waste of time. I just got 30 minutes with a startup CEO in our space who's clearly doing like really interesting things and got to ask him all the questions I could think of. And I'll, I'll see him again. Yeah, yeah, you will. That was a gift. What a gift, right? I don't need to sell him anything to make that call worth my time. That is anti-hustle. The hustlers would tell me I shouldn't have taken that call, I suppose. <laughs> or the hustlers would denigrate your outcome on there. There'd be no ROI. So why'd you do right. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Mary Ellen, I could bag on the hustle economy all day long. Like that's a hobby and a sport for me. But if you could leave our audience with a few key takeaways, what would they be? Get more sleep, drink more water, and don't eat lunch at your desk. It's gross. Totally true. Well, listen, you're a terrific friend. If people want to learn more about you, if want to get to know you, if they want to connect with you and bag on the hustle economy with you, where can they find you? You can find me over at managingeditor.com, which is the brand magazine that I'm the publisher for. Or you can find me on LinkedIn, Mary Ellen Slater. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Punk Rock HR. Whether you're new to it or you heard it before, everything you need is always in the show notes. And you can find them at laurierudeman.com forward slash punk rock HR. Now, I hope you're having a great summer and it was an honor to spend some time with you today. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time on Punk Rock HR.